turn to Mark chapter 14. Okay, now everybody's paying attention. How's everybody doing this morning? Everybody okay? Good? Okay, all right. Just, just want to make sure. So we are towards the end of our series in Mark. There are a lot of verses that we're going to read today. So um, it's a famous part of the story. We're going to read for right now verses 53 through 65. But before I do that, I'm going to ask ask the Lord to help us, um, and we will, we will dive in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much um, again for this day. We thank you for these folks. We thank you, Lord, that you are here with us. God, we pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law. Lord, help us to hear what the Spirit is saying this morning in these verses. Lord, help me communicate what needs to be said. Lord, I thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we are going to start reading with verse 53. Before I do, just as a reminder, we have been in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Jesus has been betrayed, and Jesus is now being led to the high priest. So let's, let's talk about that. Let's read verse 53 through 65. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. I'm going to stop here, but this isn't where we're going to stop today. I want to talk about this horrible, familiar portion of Scripture as we're heading to the cross. It is not 12 hours ago that they were eating the Last Supper. This is in the middle of the night, probably somewhere between 2 and 4 a.m., Jesus had been in the garden, and Judas came, and they now have brought him not into the uh, not into where they typically meet, but at the high priest's house in the middle of the night. Just so you know, this is against Jewish law. 
You are not supposed to have a trial at night. You are supposed to have it in the in the, the Sanhedrin in the temple. You're supposed to have it somewhere else, not in the home of one of the high priests. That lets you know kind of where these guys are in their hatred for Jesus and their desperation to get rid of him. They have a trial at night and they bring witnesses to go against him. When they bring the witnesses, it tells us that the witnesses don't agree with each other. Now, I already know this. How many, how many school teachers do we have in here? How many, there's like a bunch of you, right? Uh, how many times have kids made accusations and when you try to get to the bottom of the story, the story's all over the place, right? It's like, okay, so what happened? Well, he threw the toy at my head. Did he really? And then somebody else says, well, actually, he was throwing it at somebody else's head, and that's how it hit that kid's head. Well, why was he throwing it at his head? Well, they were having a contest. Like, there's just, the story goes all over the place. I remember getting in trouble semi-frequently, uh, especially at recess, doing stupid things. And But the stories that would come out of everybody's mouth when they're confronted by the authority figure, uh, and back in the day, they used to spank kids, so I was extra scared in elementary school. And uh, the stories that would float around were contradictory in terms of what actually happened. This actually plays out in uh, real-life playgrounds called work, uh, where people also have conflicts and problems, and the stories are also conflicting between adults. So this isn't just restricted to kids. This is anywhere. And we hear now, and our instantaneous media that we've got, you hear something against somebody, and then you see video evidence that's like the exact opposite of what you heard that it was. And then you find out they edited that video. So you get to a place where you're like, I'm not even sure what to think. Here, when Jesus is being accused, the witnesses that they brought, these are hand-picked people, don't agree with each other. Because the Jewish law says that it has to have, if you're going to make an accusation, it has to be established by two or three witnesses. And their testimony has to agree. But you've got a picture that they brought Jesus by force with a lot of soldiers into the high priest's house, the chief priest's house. They bring him there. There's, it's like a, a kangaroo court. We've got witnesses that are going to say the right things. We're condemning Jesus to death. We, we, we're just doing it. That's, that's really what's going on. But the witnesses don't agree. Even their story about Jesus in the way that he described tearing down the temple, Jesus said in Mark 13, he said, not a single stone is going to remain. He did say that. But he also talked about that what he meant was his temple would be resurrected on the... They didn't get any of it right. And that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because they'd already made up their mind exactly what's going to happen, and that is he is going to be condemned to death. Now this morning, because we're going to spend some time uh, 
in the next two weeks really diving into what Jesus went through. This morning, I'm actually, we're going to focus on Peter. But before we do that, look at uh, verse 65. Some began to spit on him, to cover his face and strike him, saying, prophesy. The guards received him with blows. If we had been there, what we would see is a bunch of angry, hateful people in the middle of the night in a place it wasn't supposed to be, the chief priest's house, not a court where it was supposed to be, we would have seen the eagerness to get Jesus finally. And that eagerness is demonstrated in that they start mocking him. Yeah, you, you're, you think you're a prophet. Prophesy. And they start punching him, spitting on him, and it progressively gets worse. That's what we would have seen. That's what Peter was watching. But scoot back up to verse 53. Remember that time about eight hours, Peter, when you said, even if the rest run away, I will never, I'll never depart from you. I will never forsake you. And Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came, verse 52 is what we talked about last week, they all fled. But Peter, feeling some kind of guilt, has kind of hung around towards the back. We're going to look at verse 53 and verse 54. They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And as he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So Peter, though he ran away in the Garden of Gethsemane, doesn't entirely run away. I'm just going to tell you this morning that I don't know if, I've, if I ever relate to somebody more than I do Peter in what we're reading here. Because I have run away and then regretted running away from Jesus. Anybody else? You, you have a moment to stand up for something for Christ and you don't. Or you have a moment where you, you fall short and you run away, but you don't want to run away. So you kind of circle back, but you're hanging back. You're at a distance. That's where Peter is. Following Jesus at a distance is not safe. So skip down to verse 66 in, in this passage. We haven't read this yet. And as Peter was below in the courtyard... Remember, they're at the house of the high priest. He's got servants out there in the guards. They're out there by the fire. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Now that... 
That's what Jesus said would happen. He said, the rooster's going to crow twice. You're going to die me three times. This is a shot over the bow, a direct reminder. This is your alarm at 6.30 in the morning, and you've already hit snooze, and it's reminding you you've got, you've got to get up. This rooster crow should have triggered something in Peter. He sh- because it was just about eight hours ago that they were at dinner and Jesus said, you are going to deny me. And yet, he stays by the fire and denies him again. Let's keep reading. Verse 69, And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Now, other parts of the story tell us the reason they knew he was from Galilee is because of his accent. So, I work a lot in eastern Kentucky. One of the things that we comment on when I'm down in Paintsville and Pikeville area is they know immediately that I am not from, and I'm going to try to say it the proper way, Pikeville. Because when they say it, there's like marbles in their mouth and it comes out different. So I don't know how to do it the way they do it, but they can tell I'm not from there. And we all know what an accent is. Peter has an accent. They know that the disciples of Jesus are from the Galilean region. They're in Jerusalem. These are the hill jacks from Galilee is in essence what she is saying. I These, these guys are the fishermen from Galilee. We can tell that's where you're from. Certainly you're one of them. And this is the third time he's been accused around the fire. Keep in mind, we're not miles away from Jesus. Jesus is in the house. They're in the courtyard. This is important. Because Peter can see Jesus. Jesus can see Peter. Verse 71 is awful. But he, Peter, began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now, we don't know if he cursed like blankety-blank-blank cursed because he was a fisherman after all. So we don't know if he got colorful in his language or and I would say much worse, did he invoke an oath of God, which was common amongst Jews, to say, in the name of God, I don't know him. It doesn't tell us the way he did it. Whichever way he did it, he's emotional. He's like, I don't know him. Verse 72. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. In the, in the top five moments of gut punches in the Bible, this has got to be in that list. Because Jesus is right there. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Now remember, Mark is probably the scribe for Peter. So Mark is giving us 
out of the story from Peter, but Luke gives us an extra detail here. So I want you to go to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, verse 59, which says, And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with them, for he too was a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Same story. But verse 61 is a different detail. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I do not know what that moment would have been like. But I can kind of feel it. Jesus isn't somewhere else. He's right there. Peter is denying Jesus in the presence of Jesus. Peter is denying while Jesus is being falsely accused, while they are ginning up a kangaroo court to condemn Jesus, Peter, who braggadocious Peter, Loud mouth, I'm always going to be faithful. Peter is saying, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. That's the way that went. And Jesus is right there. When it says that he went out and wept bitterly, everybody can feel this. Everybody in this room that has been a Christian for any number of time can relate to having failed Jesus. The last one of us in here can do that. Where we have sinned in a way where we feel this weeping bitterly. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I already know all of us as Christians, I'm not talking about non-Christians, I'm talking about as Christians have failed in a way that has caused us intense, deep regret. All of us have. And this story about Peter, who Jesus in Matthew 16 tells us, He's going to build his church on this rock. This guy fails horribly. So I relate to the weeping bitterly. I relate to, I can't believe I did that. Has it, you, have you, you've committed sin and walked away from it and said, I just can't even believe I, I did it. But I did. And that is where Peter is at. And that's where a lot of you could be at. One of the ways 
that the devil successfully keeps people from growth in Christ, and we talked about this in Sunday school a little bit today, one of the ways he does it is the guilt that you feel in these moments of weeping bitterly. The guilt causes Christians to just shrink in on themselves and not go to the Savior who bought them, which is where they should go to receive forgiveness of sin. Instead, we feel like we've got to do some kind of penance and earn our way back to God in some capacity. But all of us relate to what's happening here. Which is why I want us to see the restoration of Peter. So I want you to go to John chapter 21. The reason it's such a powerful story to me is I'm a little bit of a loudmouth. I'd be really willing on the front end of a journey with God to say, I'm, I'm in it until the end. Nothing's going to bring me down. Nothing's going to bring me down. One, two, three steps. <laughs> That's, that, Peter didn't even get three steps. It's eight hours. So when... And we'll get to some of this, so I'll skip ahead a little bit in John and Mark, where when Jesus is crucified and he's raised from the dead, they all take off running. Peter takes off running to the tomb. He, there's, there's an, I think there's some, there's love and there's guilt mixed in there. Peter's failed. Peter has been really the leader of the disciples and he's failed. which is why he weeps bitterly. But look at John 21. And this story we're reading is the resurrection. He's been crucified, and he's been raised from the dead. And before his ascension, Jesus has 40 days on the earth with the disciples. And this is one of those, and they have a moment where Jesus restores Peter. We're going to read with verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. Verse 17, He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Why do you think he was grieved? Could it be that 40 days ago he had denied him in the courtyard? Could, could it be that Peter had bragged in front of everybody, I will never ever depart from you, even if all the rest of them do, I will follow you even till death. It wasn't a minor brag, it was a big one. And in fact, Peter is called by God to do this very thing, is die 
for the king of kings. And he will later. It's his ministry. It's his calling. It's going to happen. And yet he falls short in his own strength. So when Jesus asks him three times, do you not think that somewhere in Peter's mind, he's like, I denied him three times. I, I denied him three times. He's asking me if I love him three times. So he's grieved. Lord, you know everything. Peter appeals to the fact that he knows that Jesus knows everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then John adds in parentheses, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now there's a lot to say in that. One of the things is, the very first thing Jesus said to him was follow me. Here at the end, he tells him again, follow me. The instructions, though difficult, are not complex. Follow me. Also, he's prophesying to Peter, you're going to die. Someone's going to lead you by the hand. Church history tells us we believe Peter was crucified in the same way that Jesus was. That's how he was martyred around the same time that the Apostle Paul was during Nero's persecution of the church. And church history says, we don't, it's not scriptural, but we think this is what happened, that Peter actually was crucified upside down because he, wasn't, he didn't want to be crucified the same way as Jesus because he didn't think he was worthy. So Jesus, in John 21, what is he doing? He's saying, Peter, I know you messed up. But I've got a job for you to do. I know you denied me. I was there as they were spitting on me, as they were falsely accusing me. You stood right out there by the fire to be comfortable, to be warm, and denied me. But I have a job for you. I am very glad to know that the standard is not perfection. I am very glad to know that Jesus takes cowardly failures and does something to them so that by the time you get to the end of your life, you're willing to die for the Savior who bought you. That's not because Peter was so strong, because we see the way Peter was. Peter was braggadocious, he had the right idea, but he couldn't follow through with it, because in your own strength, you aren't going to follow through with it. And you have proven it to yourself and others your entire life. All of us have moments of failure. We all have them. And the reason these are stories in Scripture is it's meant to demonstrate the restoration that God has for people who fail. You have good news this morning. You're in good company. The Apostle Peter was a failure 
after three years in a PhD program of discipleship with the Lord Jesus Christ in person. You would think, I would think, that if I'm with Jesus as he's walking on water and raising Lazarus from the dead and casting out demons and all that he did, that I would just assume I should just do what he says and trust him. You would just think that would be the way it worked. Just like you would think when the children of Israel saw the sea parted and the manna every morning for 40 years, they would have shut up and quit complaining. But they didn't. They, they didn't do that. Every time I start to feel spiritually uh, superior to the people in Scripture, to step back and say, uh, you're not any different. <laughs> I'm not any different. This also helps me when I'm dealing with Rob. Or anybody else, he's just the one I pointed out. But when I'm dealing with Rob, what if Rob fails? What if he disappoints me? You guys know how we judge each other, right? When I do something wrong, here is a list of all the reasons and all the circumstances and all the context as to why I did it. And if you get to the bottom of my list, you'll realize it's not my fault. Really? I mean, mom raised me this way, and I had this bad experience, and this one time, this one thing happened this one way, so I had disappointment, and I've got anxiety, and I've got these problems, and I'm depressed, and, I, and so it's not my fault. It's not, it's not my fault. It's all these things' fault. But when somebody does the same thing to you, oh, it's definitely their fault. Isn't that how we judge other people? It's not really my fault, because I've got a list of reasons, but you don't get a list of reasons when you do it to me. This is good marriage advice, by the way, that the way we're supposed to look at each other is to know that we are both susceptible to malfunctions. Peter's failure helps because of what happens next. Here's the thing when, when you preach on the restoration of God is that there's actual restoration to act. We can't stop in our conversation about forgiveness, which is wonderful, which is beautiful, that Jesus doesn't hang this over Peter's head and say, now Peter, for the rest of your life, I'm going to remind you of this time that you failed me. I'm going to remind you and I'm going to use the guilt of this moment to goad you and motivate you. I'm going to, I'm going to do it for the rest of your life and, you, and you're never going to get over it. That is not the way that God works. Thank the Lord, he forgives. He forgets the sin. He clears it out. His blood is perfect, so his forgiveness is perfect and complete. You don't have to earn your way back to God. That is not how he works. Praise the Lord. But you can't stop there. You can't stop at forgiveness. Restoration goes beyond the moment of forgiveness and the cleansing of sin. I've got stuff for you to do says Jesus. I've got a life for you to live, Peter. In fact, what I'm calling you to do is going to lead to your death. But it's going to be awesome. And it's going to glorify God. So go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at verse 36. 
Now, you got to know this is the tail end of a sermon, okay? This, this last, this sentence we're about to read in verse 36 is the end of the sermon. The sermon itself, if you read it out loud out of Acts chapter 2, is less than 10 minutes. So I'm already way past Peter's sermon. But it was on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit fell. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. The people that heard it were from all around the region. They were from all different tongues. So they hear this 120 in the upper room. They hear them speaking in their own languages. Now remember, they're Galilean hilljacks, so they shouldn't know how to speak in sophisticated languages of other people, and yet they are. And so people are wondering what's going on, and Peter comes out and says, this, we're not drunk like you suppose. This is that, which was spoken by the prophet Joel. It goes through this whole thing about this is the promise of the Holy Spirit coming to the people of God, and here it is. We, it is here. And then he says, at the end of this sermon, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Something has changed. Because the guy hiding in the courtyard would not have said this sentence. But the guy in Acts chapter 2, which is probably in a time frame about two months after the courtyard. Okay? That's about as far as we are time-wise. Can you change in two months? Not significantly, but God can change people instantaneously. And that's what's happened to Peter. Because now he's not afraid. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Why is this awesome? Because two months ago, he was outside of a courtyard weeping bitterly because he had denied Jesus to his face. Two months later, he's looking at a crowd of people saying, Repent! And they're cut to the heart. 3,000 people get saved. Here is what I want you to take away from what we're reading today. When you sin, and you will, don't try to justify it. Don't try to explain it away. Don't come up with a clever algorithm that just makes your sin meaningless. Because it's not meaningless. 
Sin is deadly. And God hates it. Instead, know and trust that this God who hates sin loves you and the same way he restored Peter wants to restore you. You go directly to God and say, I repent. I sinned against you and you only, Lord. Have I sinned? Create in me a clean heart. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. I need you. And you don't have to wallow in the mud of your sin after you've asked for forgiveness. You trust that God does what He says. If we confess our sin, 1 John chapter 1, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is what we do. It is, it's wrong to hide and it's wrong to come up with excuses. Lord, you know I did this because, well, I was raised this way. I had this experience. All of which may be legitimate. Those things may have happened. But that is our modern way of trying to justify, in some capacity, this is how I wound up here. Here's how we always wind up in sin. We are sinners. Whatever complexity we've got, it's been that complex since the beginning when Adam sinned. He introduced into the human race the complexity of sin, and it is baffling, and it is terrible, and it leads to horrible things. But Jesus Christ saves and restores people. And as Christians, you can't hide it, suppress it, run away from it, run to Jesus, run to Him and be restored from your sin. Because He's got stuff for you to do. Has stuff for all of us to do. Again, one of the most successful campaigns of the devil is to make you feel so guilty and I just can't because I'm not good enough and I'm not smart enough and I... Keep messing up. And what God wants out of you is a consistent approach to his throne, acknowledging your sin, asking for his help, and moving forward. Not staying put outside the courtyard weeping. You've got to move beyond weeping in the outside the courtyard over your sin. Weeping is fine. But don't stay in that spot. Ask God for forgiveness. And look at what Peter experienced. Something radically changed, and it was the power of the Holy Spirit in his life, which brings great hope for everybody because something, we don't have to turn there, but in Galatians, you know, Peter makes the same mistake again. Do you know, in, in the book of Galatians, he's there, he's with a bunch of Gentiles, but when the Jews come down from Jerusalem to the church in Galatia, Peter all of a sudden says, I'm not going to eat with the Gentiles. But he had been eating with the Gentiles, but now he's not going to eat with the Gentiles because the, 
the big shots from Jerusalem are here, and I want to look like a proper Jew. And Paul rebukes him. Do you know what motivated Peter to not want to be seen eating with the Gentiles? The same fear that caused him in the courtyard to not want to be related or be seen with Jesus. So that means that Peter struggled with this again after the victory of Acts chapter 2, after being filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, he messed up again. I'm not justifying us going messing up all the time. That's not, that's not what I'm doing. What I'm trying to say is, is that there is hope that we can serve the Lord and when we do mess up, we go to Him to receive restoration and forgiveness and then we go right back at it again. This isn't some sort of Christian walk where you got to be perfect for at least nine years before, before anything good can be done in your life and one single mistake, you got to go all the way back to the beginning of the line and wait another nine years. There's a lot of Christians who live that way. That's why they don't share their faith. That's why, they, that's why they're shy about believing in Jesus. They, they don't want people to know. They feel like a failure. We've got to get over all that. Peter got over it to such a degree that he was killed for it. So, what is the goal? Love Jesus enough that you will gladly go to your own death in serving him. And that is not a joke. That is the truth. So, Peter encourages me. Peter encourages me that, it, that he messed up multiple times and was used by God anyway. Praise the Lord. Okay. Now, we're going to do something incredibly biblical. We're going to stand up and pray, and then we're going to eat together. And that is biblical, because the very next verses in Acts chapter 2 is something about breaking bread and fellowship and all of that, which is what we're going to do this morning. So let's all stand up. We're going to pray, and then we'll get the, uh, get the stuff where it needs to go. I love having the kids in here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to Peter. Even after his denial, you restored him. You had a job for him to do. and Lord, you have work and ministry for all of us to do. That includes our work. That includes our family, includes raising our kids, it includes the way we look to our coworkers. God, we we are dependent on you this morning to be what you've called us to be. We cannot, in our own strength, any more than Peter could, do what you ask us to do without your help. Lord, I am so thankful this morning that your promise to us is you are with us always, even to the end of the age. We're not orphans. The Holy Spirit was given to us. So, Lord, I pray that you would encourage hearts that your forgiveness is real, that your restoration is real, 
and the empowering of your Holy Spirit is real. Lord, we thank you for that, and we thank you for the food that we're about to have. Lord, I pray that this time of fellowship would be blessed and that you would watch over all of it for your name's sake. And it is in the name of Jesus we ask. Amen. Now, moms and dads, this would be most helpful. If all the kids, all kids, kids, everybody look at me. If all the kids will go over to this side, and then we will start moving the chairs over this way. We'll start moving the tables in. Then the food will come.